0: I have to tell you, I, I found myself uh, chuckling out loud a few times this week as I, as I uh, reflected on last week's message and just watching some of you jump out of your seats when I get this blood-curdling cream scream. It was awesome. Uh, I promise, for those of you who weren't here and didn't hear the scream, you probably probably won't hear it this morning. Or will you? You, you never know what's going to happen. Um, I also promise that there's not going to be any uh, stories about scary snake movies. Uh, that just... Ugh. But we will talk about another movie briefly. Remember, it's like, maybe you saw the movie, a Steve Martin movie called Leap of Faith, like early 90s. I think it's coming out as like a Broadway musical now, too. But it was uh, Stephen Martin and, and uh, Deborah Winger and Liam Neeson were in this movie about, uh, Steve Martin was like this, this charlatan fake uh, healer, you know, like rev- tent revival kind of guy, but would travel around the country and, and manipulate people into thinking that he could do miraculous things in their lives. Right. And so what would happen is actually they'd go to big cities, usually but on this particular episode, this particular movie, uh, their their buses break down in this little know nothing town in the middle of Kansas. They decide, hey, let's set up our show here and take these people for what we can get. Right. So they would set up the big tent. They would uh, they had pyrotechnics and a huge choir and all this to do that would bring people in. And what would happen is Steve Martin would be uh, in the shiny suit with all the lights and the music and and, and Deborah Winger would be in like a uh, little control booth and people that worked on the staff would infiltrate the audience. Basically, get little tidbits of information about people and pass those on to Deborah Winger and she would communicate to Steve Martin through an earpiece, right? So, so he could manipulate in people into thinking that he knew things about them and would, and would do this fake healing kind of stuff just to get people riled up, right? And the, the big theme song was, Are You Ready for a Miracle? Right? And it was this huge thing and, and get the crowd into a frenzy. But it was all completely fake. Now, now what's interesting is that kind of idea uh, of trying to portray yourself as some kind of magical healer. Uh, to control people, to manipulate people, has gone on for forever, it seems. In, in fact, even in biblical times, in the times of Jesus, there were people within that culture who would try to manipulate people into thinking that, that this person had control over, over the things of health and, and healing and those things, and, and people would come and try to be doing it. It was kind of a, a magical idea. We're going to read our passage today, and, and we're going to learn some amazing things. Uh, we've been been involved in the Book of Mark, and we're going through the entire book during this this season, and and we're looking at tracing how Jesus is interacting with people uh, as he comes in contact with them, how he's showing them he, he's showing them what the kingdom of God is like, and he's showing them over and over again that the kingdom of God is not what they thought it was, and he's kind of turning their whole view of God and creation and world and and status up on its end. Right? They're they're turning it upside down. So our passage today. Uh, Starts in chapter 5 with verse 21 It says when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake A large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there Seeing Jesus he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live Uh, So Jesus went with him A large crowd followed and pressed around him and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He he took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha Koum, which means, Little girl, I, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. As has been our, our, our custom through this series on Mark, a narrative book, right? It tells stories about Jesus interacting with people. And when we look at a narrative, we look at the story, and it's it's really easy to keep it as something that happened a couple thousand years ago to particular people in a time and place. And, and for us to best understand the story and what's going on, we have to enter into that world and into that story to grasp it. And so we're going to do that this morning, and then we're going to pull back and say, so what are the implications to us today? not just something that stayed back there. And for us to fully grasp the story, first we have to understand that that Mark is using a great literary technique here, uh, often referred to as sandwiching. And we've seen him do that a couple of times, where he starts out with one story and then interjects another one and then comes back to the first story, uh, which tells us that that was intentional on how to relate what Jesus was doing, what he was about. And so we would be remiss to say if we look at these two stories as two separate things. We need to see them as working together because that's where something happens is how they interact. And what we're first going to see is that these two characters are completely different from each other. It says Jesus had landed back on the other side, and last week, if we remember that, that message, Jesus and the disciples, after coming through a horrendous storm, right, where they thought they were going to die, landed on the other side in Gentile territory, and they were confronted by this man possessed by a legion of demons, right? And he, Jesus cast out the demons, the townspeople told him to leave and get out of here, we, maybe this was miraculous and you have great power, but we don't understand that power, so we want you to leave, and, and Jesus listened to him, and he laughed, and, he left and They got back in the boat and probably coming back where they started from. So back to Capernaum area. And as they get back on the other side, and after some point of time, doesn't tell us, crowds started gathering around, which is, we've seen that happen over and over again. They they wanted to hear him teach. They wanted miracles to be done. They were clamoring after him. And and in the middle of this crowd, this guy named Jairus shows up. And we know first off that this guy must be someone important because we know his name. And in a town, if you don't know somebody's name, or if you know their name, it gives some level of status in the community. It says, Jairus, one of the synagogue leaders. And throughout the Gospels, very few people are named, other than the disciples and a few key characters. So, so Jairus, he was a, a synagogue leader. And so he had probably heard Jesus in the synagogue, because he was the manager of the synagogue. This was not a, a giant city, so this, in some way it was a, was a big fish in a small pond. But he had status, he had importance, he probably had wealth. He was a person that had a big home outside of town, right, with servants and people. And he had a position. And he came to Jesus. And when we've seen the synagogue leaders and the religious leaders before, it's always been in this spirit of antagonism with Jesus, right? These are the people who are questioning who Jesus is. Who is he to speak with authority? Who is he to eat with the Pharisees and the outcasts? Who is he to forgive sins, right? They're questioning who he is. But in the midst of this man's need for his daughter, he comes to Jesus, this man of status, this man of position, and falls down on Jesus' feet and says, just come to my daughter who's very ill. If you just touch her, she'll be better. Interesting. And while that interaction is going on, Jesus said, sure, let's go. They're going to start heading out of town. It says this, this crowd is there, and now we have this woman. says so this woman who had had a, a disease of some sort, some kind of physical ailment that has caused her to be bleeding for 12 years. It doesn't give us specifics about what the issue was. Most experts think it was some kind of uterine bleeding. But, but it could have been any kind of hemorrhage. Could have been could have been anything, but it was related to blood. And so in the Hebrew culture, blood that came from a person is seen as unclean and makes that person unclean. For example, if this was this woman's regular cycle, during a certain point of that time, she is unclean and can't be around anyone has to stay in her home. Uh, The the culture was such that if, if you sat on a chair she had sat on during that time, you were seen as unclean, and you would have to go through the right rituals to be clean again. And so this woman had been in this kind of condition for 12 years. It said she had done anything she could to try to get over this condition, to be cured. She was under the care of many doctors. And when we see that term doctor, we really need to take that with a grain of sand in this culture. Uh, Doctors, it was not a a deep, profound science. This was more like people trying to come up with something to to get rid of it and we'll collect money. And she had spent everything she had. She had gone bankrupt trying to get a cure. And some of the cures for bleeding kind of issues back then were fascinating. Like, Like one was you would drink this elixir made out of a, a Persian onions, boiled in wine, while you're drinking it, the doctor would say, arise from your issue of blood. Obviously, it didn't work. You should try that, Shannon, with one of your patients. It might be amazing just to see their reaction. So under the care of the doctor, nothing had happened. So that it she got worse. She, she, she was desperate for anything. Well, we talked last week about this man that was filled with the demons, right? The legion of demons, thousands of demons. And and we discovered that one of the things that was most destructive about his life is that he lived in isolation. He had been in the town, and they couldn't control him, they couldn't tame him, so they sent him out of town, which made things worse. He lived by himself in the middle of the tombs, in the middle of the dead, screaming and cutting himself, all all trying to get rid of these things. But he lived in isolation, which was destroying him. Here we have this woman who is perpetually seen as unclean. And nothing could help her, nothing could save her. She was completely alone, completely isolated, because who's going to be around her? Yet she was in the middle of the town, yet isolated and alone. In the middle of that, she, she hears that Jesus is there, and she thinks to herself, if I can just touch his clothes, if I can just touch that, that might heal me. And so it says in the middle of this crowd, she, she went out and fought her way through the crowd and just touched him. And, and at that point, Jesus says, who touched me? He says he felt power come out of him. Who, who touched me? What's interesting is this phrase about touching his clothes is stated like four times by Mark. Because there was a, an idea in that culture, in that kind of Greco-Roman world, that there was the sense, if there was a miracle performer, if they, they had cloth, if you just touched that cloth, you could get some of that magic. And Mark mentioned that like four times, I think his audience in Rome in the 60s would have would have understood that. And we go, why does he mention that? If I could just touch his clothes, if I could just touch his clothes, if I could just touch his clothes, well it's because that was a view of that time. So she was going out thinking maybe this is a magical opportunity, maybe this is what will heal me. And we have this amazing interchange. This woman who's absolutely isolated in her life, who can't go anywhere. She has no opportunities. She has no family. Nobody's going to come visit her. She doesn't have a chance for marriage. She has no opportunity for advancement. Why? Because she's unclean all the time for 12 years. And yet she's willing to go out, and she touches his clothes. And at that moment, Jesus felt something glad of him, some power. And he goes, who touched me? And the disciples, in their always state of understanding things, so what do you mean, who touched you? We're in the middle of this crowd. Lots of people aren't touching you. One of the things we also have to grasp in this story is that when Jesus asked that question, who touched me, it was a literal question. He, he really was wondering. And, and, and one of the things I think we, we, we believe so strongly and rightfully and theologically correctly that, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, right? He's, he's both. But sometimes I think, in our Christian circles, we, we tend to gravitate towards the divine side, and we, we see Jesus walking around Galilee and walking around uh, the sea in this little town, always knowing what people are thinking, and always understanding everything, but, but, but that wouldn 't be fully human I mean th- that 's strictly divine, and so he said he asked the question, "Who touched me and he 's looking around to see he 's trying to understand who touched me I. this power went out, I wonder who it was. And, At this point, this woman, who, remember, she spent her last 12 years in isolation, completely unclean. If you walk down the street, people get out of the way. They want nothing to do with you because they don't want to become unclean. You live that kind of life. You want to stay in the shadows. You don't want anybody near you. And Jesus, who just healed you, turns as who does it, and you make eye contact. It's like, why are you asking? I don't want anybody to know. Do you know my life? Who touched me? And it, and it says when she came to realize what had changed in her, she fell down at his feet, just like Jairus did. And it, and it said she told him every way. And I, I just have this picture of this woman who's doing, and Jesus just getting down. And it's like, tell me, tell me what's going on. She says, I, I've been sick for 12 years. I, I live in this place. I, I'm broke. I spent every penny I have trying to get help, and nothing has happened. But you've changed my life. I was nothing; I had nobody. And you're you're talking to me here in the street, and now everybody's going to know. And you know, I think that's okay because they're going to know something has changed. Was an amazing interaction. It says, "While wow, they're still talking, we something was going on with Jairus. So we kind of need to we kind of need to pan out a little bit." Because there's, although there's this amazing thing that's taken place with this woman, this, this miraculous healing, this person who had absolutely no status in the community, who was an outsider, who was unclean, who couldn't deal with anybody or come in contact with anybody, Jesus has healed her. But, but Jairus is over here, and what are you thinking if you're Jairus? Okay, this is all great, but I got here first. I have status, I, I'm a synagogue leader, I'm a teacher, I, I have the right to come before you and ask because I'm a, a ruler in this community. And yeah, I, I humbled myself and got down and said, can you come heal my daughter? But, but this is kind of taking a little too long. We gotta go. My, my daughter's sick, we, we gotta get going. And yeah, the, the, great for you. It's hard enough for us to rejoice when something good happens to somebody else normally. I mean, it's like, oh, hey, that's great. But if we have something tragic going on in our life, I really don't wanna hear it. Come on, come on, come on. Oh, how long are you going to talk to her? we got to go. And, and while all this is going on, somebody from your house comes down the street and says, your daughter has died. If this hadn't taken so long, maybe it would be different. And, and Jesus, in the way I picture this, he's still talking to the woman and just kind of says, don't be afraid, only believe. So Jesus gets up and he has just three of his disciples come and everybody else stay back and, and they work their way towards this guy's house. it's like, okay, don't be afraid, just believe. It's like, oh no, here, here are the wailers and the, the mourners. The professional mourners are already there. And, and we have to understand that was part of the, the culture again. That that a, a a situation, a culture, an environment needed to be created that was conducive to mourning the loss. And so there were people, it was part of their job, it was part of their livelihood, they were professional mourners, and and it was expected of everyone, even the poorest person was expected that if somebody died in their family, they would provide at least two flute players and a mourner. But this was a guy of means, this was a guy of wealth, this was a guy of status, and so likely this was a big group of professionals that were there usually including a lead dancer and a a team of dancers and a a chorus and and antiphonal clapping and, and people who would loudly wail and cry because that would make it okay for the family member to be sad and sorrowful. And so they're coming through this. I've already had to wait. Now I have to wade through this in my own home, this thing that's a reminder constantly that my daughter has died and we did not get here in time. And Jesus has the audacity to say, hey, what's going on? Why all the commotion? She's not dead. She's asleep. And they said, look, we're professionals. We show up when someone has died. We understand that I'm the first flute player. I'm dancer number two. We've been in the house. We've seen dead people. There's one in there. And so they laughed at him. Jesus left them behind too, went in just with the mother and the father, and it was just three disciples, and he saw the little girl lying there. And he gave this Aramaic, Aramaic phrase, Talitha which which literally means it's time to wake up, girl. And so she got up and started dancing around the room, and they gave her something to eat. And then Jesus said, don't tell anybody about this. Well, it's kind of hard to keep quiet that the 12-year-old dead girl is dancing around. Word is going to get out pretty quickly. And we also are baffled, too, because this this guy of status, this religious leader who, in a sense, had risked everything of his position to come to Jesus, brought him there. And Jesus, Jesus raised his daughter from the dead. And Jesus says, don't tell anyone. Yet we had just had this example of this woman who desperately wanted to stay anonymous. And Jesus made her come out and talk about what had just happened. I think in, in one way, the, the, the story wasn't ready to be out that Jesus resurrected someone. Remember, he didn't go in and say, hey, she's really dead. I'm going to raise her. We're going to do resurrection. No, it's, she's asleep. And, and in his eternal perspective of everything, she was just in a kind of sleep. going would get out soon enough. It, it wouldn't be secret. But people would probably have the questions of, well, was she really just asleep? but she's out now. And then we have this, this woman whose life had been miraculously changed, and, and she had to tell everyone. Fascinating contrast between two people. person of status and position and wealth and intellect and, and uh, he was studied. He, he had the ability to come to Jesus because of his status and, and request something. This other person who was absolutely destitute, she had nothing, she was no nothing, she was unclean, for 12 years, yet she could come too. So in the midst of their faith, in their midst of their interaction with Jesus, their lives crossed. In the midst of this faith, we, we learn incredible things. We realize that, that, that faith is all about the object of the faith. That, that's where it's important. That's what matters when it comes to faith. Not an amount of faith, but who your faith is in. The object of this woman's faith was Jesus. And that changed everything. He made this amazing statement to her when he, when he healed her. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Which, which is interesting because if we, if we go back to that movie I referenced at the beginning, Leap of Faith, a very pivotal point in that movie is when Steve Martin is interacting with this waitress at the local diner who he's kind of infatuated with. And he gets to talk into her and, and find out that she has a younger brother who had been disabled in an automobile crash and had troubles walking. And this lady, who doesn't trust Steve Martin's character, because she's seen it all before, told the story of another time a healer had come to town. And her little brother desperately wanted to be healed, so he went up to be healed, but obviously he couldn't be. And this this preacher, this healer, looks at him basically in front of everyone and says, the reason you couldn't be healed is because you didn't have enough faith. Which, if we know our scripture, is not scriptural things that happen in life aren't about the amount of faith, it's about the object of the faith. And this woman had a primitive faith. She, she, she didn't know anything. She was not theologically rooted. She had not been trained. She, she almost bordered on magical. If I just touched that, but it was about Jesus. And he turned this from what she thought could have been a magical thing. I touched his cloth and it worked to this personal encounter with the God of the universe. It wasn't magical, it wasn't secret, it wasn't anonymous, it was personal, it was up close, it was face-to-face, and it was mutual. Your faith has healed you. Your faith in me. And then he made this great statement that says, go in peace and be freed from your suffering. That's not just a nice little pleasantry, hey, have a good day. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering was was more capturing this Jewish idea of shalom, shalom. Peace was not just have a good day, it was go in peace. It's more than freedom from the ailment, but go with well-being and with wholeness and with friendship and with relationship and with salvation. Go with all of that as your whole being. Go in peace. She didn't just have her, her illness treated, she had her whole life transformed. And she knew Jesus. Faith is only as good as its object. And, and so we, we, we look at this faith that these two exhibited. And really it was, it was rooted in a sense of desperation. And, and, and we saw through it all that faith, this kind of faith, this, this faith in the object of Jesus, this faith is about persistence. It, it's persistent faith. That was something they shared in common. They both overcame so much. I'm willing to step out of my hut and just, just touch the clothes of Jesus. I'll do whatever it takes. And she had been doing whatever it takes for 12 years to the point she had lost everything. And this was her, her last hope. I, I have to reach out and touch him. And, and this man overcame. He was persistent. I mean, think about it all. He he overcame probably what were his preconceived notions of who Jesus was. We don't, we don't know if he was one of the group of religious leaders that were ridiculing Jesus, that were challenging him, but, but he might have been. Either way, he had heard it all from his colleagues. Yet he was willing to to step down from that place and go to Jesus, and then then he saw that Jesus was spending way too much time with this woman, and now he hears that his, his daughter has been she 's dead and it 's too late, and jesus said let 's go anyway, come with me, just, just believe don 't be afraid. remember we 've seen over the last few weeks that, that fear is the opposite of faith don 't be afraid, just believe, come come with me let 's go, and then I have to work my way past all the mourners and the wailers, and then I have to go in the, in the next room and Then amazing things happen. And persistent. Faith is persistent and and faith is, is active. We've seen that over and over in the Book of Mark. Faith is active. It it doesn't stay in secret, it steps out. And these two show that in amazing ways. Yet we still need to say, how do how do we have this implicate us? How do we take this out of a story that happened 2,000 years ago to those very particular people and say, what does this look like in our lives? How do, how do we find ourselves in the story? We said faith is only as good as his object, but I think we need to go a little further and define and say faith that honors God is a certain kind of faith. And In this story, faith that honors God is fueled by desperation. And desperation is not a word we use very often in our culture. We use words like individualistic, and and talented, and gifted, and strong, and courageous. Desperation seems like weakness. But but this is talking about a a faith that is fueled by desperation. Everything they were driven by was, this is our only hope. And I am willing to humble myself through whatever this circumstance is, whatever my status is, my my place of influence, and beg Jesus to touch my daughter. I'm willing to risk other people getting dirty and unclean just so I can touch them. I've done everything. I am absolutely desperate, and and nothing's going to stop me. I'm throwing caution to the wind. Desperate. And when I think of the word desperate, some pictures come to mind in my head, like, like the kind of the nightmare a lot of us have, where where you can't breathe. You ever have that? Like you feel like things are closing in on you, you can't breathe, and I'm desperate for a breath of air. Or even if we go so far in just a horrible visual of, of somebody drowning, and what goes on in your head? I need I need to breathe. Or people that get lost in the wilderness, and we know you can last three days without water. What is that kind of thirst like? If I don't get something to drink soon, I'm going to die. That's, that's desperation. And we see stories in the news of somebody who, who's been lost for days, and, and, and the reason they couldn't make it is because they, they didn't have any water. And others who survived those days, and you go, how did they even make it? And if we had had a video of of that situation, as horrific as that would be, we'd, we'd send them, they would be doing anything they could to find water. Looking everywhere, I have to find water, I have to find it, I'm desperate for it, I will not live if I don't get it. That's what desperation is, and that's what these two exhibited. If I don't get to Jesus, it's lost. I need it, just like I need breath, just like I need water. I need it. I'm desperate. Faith that honors God is fueled by desperation and it's lived out in radical trust. It's desperate, but it's not just sitting back. It says, I have to move. This, this, this woman who would tried everything, it would have been very easy for her to sit back and go, I hear, I hear that, that must be Jesus going out there. I've heard about him. I can't go out there. I can't humiliate myself again. I, I, I just can't do it. Maybe, maybe he'll hear about me. Maybe he'll come into me. Maybe he'll find me. And then maybe I'll be okay, but no, their sounds are dimming. No, no, she was desperate, and that desperate-fueled radical trust that I'm going to step out and I'm going to go and I'm going to reach out. And just like this this man, Jairus, he radically said, I'm going to trust. When he says, just after hearing that your daughter's died, when he says, don't be afraid, just believe. I'm going to believe. And I'm going to follow, and and we're going to go. And I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what the result will be, but I'm going to trust. That takes a radical way of living. Because it's counter to how we live so often, where we want the answer. We we joked over the last couple of weeks when Jesus said, hey, let's go to the other side of the lake. Well, where? What are we going to do when we get there? How will I know this is the best place to go? He says, no, just get in the boat. We're going. And so we look at these stories and these ideas of of radical trust and and living in a faith that's fueled by desperation. We're really getting to the place that says we have trust. We have faith. That means we can trust Jesus in the midst of what seems like hopelessness. Now what I'm not going to do here this morning is stand up here and make a promise to you. We look at these stories and in these situations, in this radical trust, in this desperation, in this active, in this having to focus on the right object of faith, God healed this woman and he raised this girl from the dead. I'm not going to promise you that if you're sick and you say to Jesus, just like you did with that daughter, heal me of my illness, that he'll take away the illness. That might not happen. One of the things that's interesting when you're desperate and thirsty for water and you absolutely need it to live, you really don't know if you'll ever get that drink of water. But if you are living as somebody who is desperate for Jesus in your life and in a a faith that's fueled by desperation and lived out in radical trust, he is always with you. You will have the presence of Jesus in your life. And we, we pull back from the story and go, this woman had this condition for 12 years, yet she kept striving for something, and eventually she found Jesus. She had the biggest thing she could ever get, a life transformed by Jesus. It's guaranteed he healed her from this disease. She got sick again in life. This little girl was raised from that dead, and, and she, she had died from an illness, but, but she got other illnesses, and she eventually died. This wasn't like a once-and-for-all solution for the entire rest of their life. Things happened. Yet in the middle of it, this woman had something greater than just the illness being cured. Her whole life had been transformed by a face-to-face encounter with Jesus. It's amazing. And so we look at this story. Twelve years, and and, and we could easily just it's an arbitrary number, talk about our own lives. What's gone on in the last twelve years in your life? And we probably hear some amazingly cool stories of things that have happened to people in this, in this room in the last 12 years. You go, wow, that's amazing. I've had some. But we'd also hear some stories that are just tragic. Things that are painful and, and sorrowful. I mean, I could tell stories, and, and in the last 12 years in my family, we've had, we've had multiple suicides. We closed a church that I pastored. My son had something horrific happen to him through the internet. I became unemployed for a long period. We just about lost everything. And you have stories like that too. The details just go on and on. And we feel like the disciples who, who got in this boat just obeying Jesus. Let's go to the other side. In the middle of it, they hit this torrential storm that they, they thought was going to kill them. And they, they didn't call to Jesus for help. They said, Don't you care? And I've cried that out to God many times. Don't you care? Don't you see what's going on? Aren't you going to do something? Don't you care? Don't you join me in my panic? And then you you come through that storm and you land on the next shore and you think, I can take a breath. But no, here comes this madman running down from the hills. It's another storm of another kind. We go, when will it end? It just seems like one thing after another. For 12 years or 15 years. But as Jesus said to this woman, go in peace, be free from your suffering. That the greatest gift she got was not the healing, it was Jesus. She got Jesus. In a fully transformed life, she got Jesus. And that changed everything. That was life itself. We don't know anything about what happens to these two after this. But their lives were changed forever. And when the other storms came, when the little girl got sick again, when this, this woman had lost something, maybe she didn't get the community she wanted to have, but she had Jesus. Through it all, in the midst of it all, everything was different from that point forward. We pray for the healing. We, we pray for something miraculous. And the biggest miracle of all is that we get Jesus. Jesus. Our whole lives have been changed and transformed forever and for the good. And Jesus keeps saying, follow me. And we're going to learn more along the way. And you're going to become more and more transformed into my image, not his divinity, but his full humanity, as we were created to be. So we ask ourselves our question, are we desperate for Jesus? Do we live out our life in radical trust? These two are a great example. Are you desperate? God wants us to be in that place. He wants to look and say, do you know all those things that have happened over these last 12 years and more, these things that seem like storms over and over and over, one after the other, I'd love to see that you're desperate. i love to see that you think of me and your need for me like your need for air and for water. Because that's when I can work in amazing ways in your life. Are you desperate? Let's pray.